Hi, this is Cliff Click, and welcome to today's podcast. Um, today I'm going to be talking about language design, but I'm going to take a few seconds to first talk about a, a new venture I'm starting, which is basically a school to teach high-performance, uh, high-end programming to expert programmers. Um, it'll be the Rocket Real-Time School of Programming and Performance. I'm hoping to start classes sometime this summer or fall. Uh, look for me on a Twitter feed or RSS feed near you. Um, and, and just where this came from, I've had a lot of people ask for this kind of stuff from me in the past. And of course, I do a lot of public speaking, so you can find a ton of videos of me talking about all kinds of cool stuff. Um, I finally threw out a survey monkey on Twitter, and I had 10% of my Twitter followers, you know, uh, answer the survey and say, oh my gosh, totally yes. I, I would sign up in a heartbeat. So there you go. I'm, I'm going to be teaching a class sometime, you know, in the next few months. Okay, so let me go back to talk about language design. And, and first, I'm going to talk about like, why the hell am I here? Well, of course, I've been coding for like 45 years. Um, I have done serious large projects in a bunch of languages, including basic, C, C++, Java. I'm gonna say serious large projects. These are projects that are 100,000 lines and up in scale, um, of which, I mean, I wrote 100,000 lines or more. Um, <coughs> And, and, you know, I, I touched upon, when I say touched upon, I've used languages sort of at a much smaller scale, say, you know, 1,000 to 10,000 or 100,000 lines, you know, Scheme, Lisp, Elm, Scala, Python, Bash, JavaScript, um, lots and lots of languages. And then, of course, I've touched hundreds where I've sat down and just coded in for a day or two just to see what it was like. Um, and there are a couple things, a couple themes come through over the course of time. And one of them is, you know, I love uh, uh, type inference. And, and type safety. You need type safety as program scale. The, the, you know, the, the 10,000 line Python program is a big program because you don't have type inference to help you understand what the hell you're doing. And as you add more programmers, you just need the type safety, which means you have to have types, which means you usually end up writing lots of types unless you have type inference, which you get out of like Scala and ML and Elm and a couple other languages. So um, not having type inference leads you to writing types over and over again, which everyone who codes in Java is well aware of, and actually C, C++ as well. And there's a brevity you get by not having to type all those type inferences, including you get in Python, which doesn't have it. Um, and the brevity really counts for something. It's, it, brevity lets you uh, express more stuff in fewer lines of code. And this gets me down a whole other path, which is fewer lines of code go straight to fewer bugs. But let me back up here a second. Um, I love first-class functions. Um, they took me a little while to wrap my head around them, but I wrapped my head around them in grad school, you know, 30-odd years ago. Um, I love the speed you get out of C and, and Java and Julia, but not out of Python, not out of JavaScript. So, um, you know, I, I want a language that's fast, has first-class functions, it has full type inference, it's very brief, it's a very, very concise way to write code. And then I have a bunch of other features that I want, and what I just mentioned I'm going to talk about uh, in this language I'm designing called AA. It's, it's on GitHub under, you know, cliffclick. Uh, slash AA, it's an open repo with an Apache V2 or whatever. Somebody's forked it already, what the hell. Um, it doesn't actually run anything. I'm just doing type inferencing with it right now. But you can see in, in the, the one giant test file I have uh, a ton of snippets that I'm claiming are legal AA code that are fully typable and you know do all the right things. And you can see what the language looks like as I write larger and larger examples. Okay, so other things I might want in the language here, uh, low latency GC, heck, I did it at Zing, at Azul, I totally know how to do it. Um, I love the Rust style memory lifetime management because I did a lot of memory lifetime management in C and C++, uh, in particular in Java, which is a huge multi-threaded program, multi-threaded memory lifetime management for C and C++ is a pain in the neck. And so I'd love to have an automated version of that. 
Um, I want to have the jetting and the profiling, and I want to have it be self-reflective so you can bring it right back into the program, or that you can install a package which would be your own profiler that just like looks at the data directly uh, at your running program. So you get good high-quality profiles, not the safe point style profiles you get out of uh, the standard hotspot implementations, but a real, you know, uh, random probing uh, stack random stack crawl profiling, um, which is sort of the right way to go. You have to do random stack probings or you don't get good answers. Okay, so this AA language I'm writing, it has full type inference, um, a la Henley Miller. I'm not currently using Henley Miller, but the goal is to be strong as or stronger. I do type some things that Henley Miller will not allow, but there's some things that I don't type that Henley Miller will, and so there's some issues I haven't gotten myself there yet. Um, but in particular, no types are required. I'll fully uh, do type inference. And you can add types optionally. And like in Julia, they're like a, a cast um, or an assert. If you're not actually of that type, um, you'll get a compile time error. And I want my AA language to be fast, to bake down to bare metal. So everything I'm doing always has the ultimate end that I can put it down to like machine code directly. There's no extra layers of indirection. Um, Object headers will exist for certain kinds of things, but there are bare primitives. And the primitives are, uh, you know, like Julia, they're like treated like first class citizens up until the point where you have to sort of box them or you can't uh, uh, make them behave like a first class citizen. Um, generally, by doing, and I'd make this, you know, make them behave like a first class citizen by doing overloading. Uh, under the hood, I, it will silently replicate and then specialize for each of the different types. Um, and that's sort of basically working now. Um, probably when we get to the point where you're going to mix, say, you know, strings and float values and complicated objects in the same, you know, array, and you just have to box the darn numbers, um, I'll probably default to failing um, and have an option that says, I want to go slow and convenient and auto box. And the, the default might change, or you might be able to change the default on the fly. But there are times when Autoboxing is the wrong answer because I actually actually must have speed because I'm looking at a terabyte of data. This is H2O. I looked at terabytes of data all the time. Um, if you silently autoboxed, um, you would show up when the things suddenly slowed down by factors of 10x or 100x. We got ludicrously slower on the big data. It was just like not tolerable. But that was only accounts for the small piece of the code that was touching the big data. You had a whole lot of management code around the big data. And a whole lot of management code around running um, complicated algorithms for doing complicated math that would needed to be correct and cared not so much about speed in the management side. They cared about when they were touching the data because data was huge. But on the management side, you wanted convenience. So you know, I, I'm, there's a tension here. I haven't decided how to go. Except there's probably a way to say there's a default. And you can flip the default, and one of the defaults is thou shalt only write code which can be baked to bare metal real fast. And there's another default which says, hey, do whatever is convenient and make it work. Right? Okay. Um, lines of code and brevity. I talked about this in a different blog, but basically, expressiveness really matters. If you're one of these guys that likes to add lots and lots of open space between curlies and spread out things and use giant, uh, giant variable names, um, I did a large experiment. Over um, well, I looked at all of Hotspot when I left Sun, um, and looked at a hundred thousand bugs, like a huge count of bugs, and I stared at where they came from and who wrote them and how they wrote them and why. And the answer came back: people had a rate of bug they wrote per line of code, like the act of writing the code uh, and spacing it out, leads to a fixed rate of having bugs. 
Having denser code, more expressive code, code that had more functionality per line of code, had the same bug rate as fluffy code. But you got more done with the, the more expressive code per bug. And you got more done over units of time because you had less overall bugs, get the same kind of functionality going. So brevity matters. It matters in your everyday writing code. If you're if you like writing very you know fluffy code and reading it, you might start pondering um, you know what it is and, and how you're writing your code that you're looking at this to thinking it looks better because there may be a better way for you to go here. Okay, so on that note, I'm looking to have AA be extremely brief to write or, or short. And you can of course write long variable names, but I use short ones in inner loops. And yeah, that's a different story. That's, you know, variable names should have a, like a length that's proportional to the size of their scope. If they're spanning a huge counts of files and packages, then having an expressive name matters. If it's the, uh, you know, hot index in an inner loop that's doing some for loop over whatever, uh, I use IJK and I'm done, right? Okay, so no keywords in AA because I don't need to type keywords. Maybe this will change at some point, but right now I, I can do what I can do without any keywords. There are some uh, reserved characters. There's uh, equals for assignment, more on that in a minute. There's open curly for starting uh, uh, an anonymous function. There are only anonymous functions and you assign them to variables if you want to give a name to a function. <laughs> and question mark colon for the trinary. And because we're sort of first class functional all the way, um, you don't need to have an if then else per se, you just use trinary logic everywhere. Uh, semicolon to separate statements um, when you when you want to put them on the same line and like Python, if you just do a line break between a statement, that'll, that's good enough too. Um, what else? Uh, variables, variables can be assigned, can be defined anywhere just by following with an equals. Say variable name equals blah, blah, blah. You can have it in the middle of an expression. You can have it at the start of expression. You can have it in if statements and loops or whatever you want. And you cannot reassign except on loops, more on that later. So it's more like a mathematical assignment. But you can put them anywhere you want. And in particular, that means you can put them in the middle of other expressions and then use it later in the same expression because it's completely uh, it's unambiguous. It's entirely obvious what it means. And it's just a shorter way to write. You don't have to say a keyword like let, like you would in Scheme or some other functional languages, or var, it was a JavaScript var, you have to show this in like Python, some other things. But actually in Python, you, you don't have to have var either. You can just start with a def and go. Variable equals blah, blah, blah. So variable equal, blah, 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 and away you go. And then you can just use the variable over again, and then we'll do full you know, type inferencing and figure out what the hell the type is later. Um, one of the big things that is in C and C++ that is not in Java or Scala or these functional languages, or I think even Python, and that's ifdef macros. Now, what the hell is an ifdef macro? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a thing that's done sort of pre-syntax time that says if the ifdef is false, and false is defined as falsiness, like Python, and only on expressions which are compile time constants, if it's false, then the code within the ifdef is thrown away, even if it's full of syntax errors. And there's an else clause, and then the code on the other side is there, and you can flip the, you know, you can invert the statement around, and if not def versus def, and put bangs to invert whatever. You have expressions. Okay, this is used everywhere in uh, in OSs to guard out stuff for different machines. This is everywhere in portable software layers. Like Java did a really good job of making things portable by doing this very thing I'm talking about under the hood. You can't implement Java in Java without doing this thing, right? And this is. Uh, to guard out stuff for different OSs or different hardware or different whatever. So you, you need a way to say, don't look at this. 
this is a function definition or, or a declaration that I might call because I'm linking against some other library which has a similar name. It's the read call to the OS. But on this OS, I need two arguments. and that OS, I need three or whatever it's going to be. This one returns a value and that one does not or whatever it's going to do. The definitions are different. They're syntactically incompatible. You can have a function that is everywhere going to be called with either two or three arguments or whatever, except always guarded by these if defs. So I allow an if def, but in a fully type-safe way, um, you can have syntax errors inside uh, turned off code, and that's okay. And as long as you don't actually do anything on the turned off code, it's fine. And what is a compile time constant? What is turned off code? It's anything an optimizing compiler can figure out on the fly. Well, that's a pretty generous statement of what a constant is. So, uh, you know, expressions involving math, uh, small functions, which will get inline, so uh, you know various kind of tests. Other nested if then else's that produce you know boolean values can also be done, or toothy values can also be done there. So it's pretty pretty robust definition of what can be uh, guarded by an if, and then if it's guarded by an if, you can have syntax errors, and that's okay. So among other things, you can have a variable definition on one side of an if inside of a, a you know one arm of an if then else. Um, and that variable's liveness definition will end at the exit of the, the one arm of the if. And if you use it past there, that's a syntax error because it's not defined on the, on the other side. It's only defined on one side. But if you've turned it off on the one side or the other side, then it's, it's all good. Um, you can have them on both sides of an if, and I'll know that the test goes both ways and it's defined on both sides. Then it's the same variable to be used afterwards. It's fine. Um, you can also have it defined on one side of an if. Then in the if, do some common shared code, restart the same if using the same exact condition, and that variable will be alive again under that same arm of the if, um, which is really handy in sort of, uh, I want to say, zippering expressions where I say if, and this OS I do this, and that OS I do that. You know, if it's Windows, it's forward slash, and if it's Linux, it's backward slash, or whatever. I'm doing file name separator things. And then I come back together for some shared code, and then I if, and I split apart, and Windows it's this, and Mac it's that, and bring it back together and do some shared code, and if, and bring it apart again. And you get this zippering um, of it's together and apart, together and apart, and you have variables that can be fine on one arm of an if, but not on the other, and that's fine. Um, no forward refs here, except for uh, mutually recursive functions. Um, you know, I, I guess I've kind of hit the easy top-level pictures of what I have implemented in the typing system. Um, and they have a bunch of like fun open questions I'm like sorting on now. Um, and you know, a big one is like uh, how to handle exceptions. Um, I claim Java got it wrong, but of course, you know, 20 years ago we didn't know, so it was a great thing to try. I'm glad Java tried it. Um, but there's all these horrible issues where I see people doing I'm gonna call um, catch and ignore handling or uh, catch log and rethrow. Like if you were logging it and you were rethrowing it. Don't you think the guy who eventually catches it is also going to log it? Why did you bother to log it? So do not bother to log and rethrow exceptions. But you see people do it all the time. And then the other one is, I catch it because the, the thing was trying to be polite and pr throw the proper error, but I don't want to deal with throwing throws clause of whatever the exception is, IO exception. So I'm going to recast it to a runtime exception, an unchecked one, and then throw that. Right, and and that's sort of a, a way to politely say, uh, if this exception is thrown, I'm going to crash, but I'm going to crash stupidly. So you might as well not have caught it, let it propagate all the way at the top and crash there. Right. So what do I do about this? 
Um, I like the Elm approach. It's very strict, and I don't know if it works for everybody. And that is to claim that error is just a state like any other state. You should handle it uh, like you handle all your states, but make it easy to handle, such as compiler support. Um, so compiler support would be, say, I can return uh, uh, an Elm a tagged union. So in uh, Scala, they might call it option, and Elm is called result or maybe. There's a couple different variations of the same thing. Um, I'm returning a value with an OK tag, or I'm returning an error tag, and then some sort of error data. The error data in Elm was a string. I might rather have a stack trace um, as a starting point, but it's error data, and you can annotate it how you want. And But your point is you're handling on the spot. Locally, right here, right now, I know that I can't really handle this kind of error, but I can report. And as you go return results, people up the food chain, when they break open that result, they are forced to handle the error case. And the common thing is say, I don't know how to handle it. I'm simply going to pass it on and exit now. And, it be and you make this con syntactically convenient by having like Elvis operators or whatever the hell that just start you know, reporting back the same error that they got at whatever point they got it at. And, and when you come to a point where you can handle it, you handle it as best you can, and then you know maybe you have to keep arrowing up the stack trace. Um, but there's no, there's no. You could ignore it locally with little syntax, but you're allowed to know an error happened and do something if you want easily without rethrowing the error after doing something. With the concept being that this error can be handled eventually. But each layer has to do its own handling, layer by layer, except there'll be some top-level layer which eventually will catch it and say, okay, it's handled really now and I'm, I'm done. I don't have to throw it again. I don't have to pass it on. We've completely handled it. Many errors go back to some lifetime top-level, I want to say service loop in that kind of a situation where they want to know that all the state in between was uh, you know, correctly handled. I had, a, I had a transaction, it timed out, I'm doing a web service, I got a broken you know, TCP connection, whatever. Um, all I want to know is I didn't leave any weird ass state as I backed out. And when I got back to the top level, I'm going to go handle the next transaction. And this one is considered done and aborted and I throw it away and carry on. So, so there was a full handling of, of the error case. Um, but I, I, I was forced to think about it at each layer as I unwound, but it was made really easy for me to claim the thinking consisted solely of, I'm giving up now, bye. Right? Okay. So so that's sort of my, my you know, I like the Elm approach. The downside, of course, is there are certain classes of errors for which there was no recovery, except the application had a bug and had to be fixed. And, and this will be... Um, Array index out of bounds in Elm. They did the same kind of behavior where they returned a, a, a null value or maybe a wrapped maybe on every array load, which pretty much defeats the purpose of doing arrays, which are to be very high speed. You know, big data, dense representations, high speed. You don't want to be testing that you had array index out of bounds on every array check. Java does array checks for you and does it with essentially zero cost by doing the, the balance check over the entire loop of the whole array. So I want a better answer than what Elm's doing for array index out of bounds, and I don't have it yet. There's an obvious one that says um, there's a second kind of crash, and I've seen this happen in other languages too. The other kind of crash is one that says, my application's dead now. I'm going to only ever do a standard system level default crash dump report, and I'm out. And that's sort of like, a, I think at Elm it's called debug.crash. 
Um, and other languages would be system.exit with, uh, you know, with a, with a stack trace or something, right? It's an unhandled exception, an unhandleable exception, and you bailed all the way out and you died. And that's perfectly reasonable for issues that you don't expect to happen at runtime, but you have some low level of bugs that you have to go sort your app out on. Um, and, and for which you, you're not expecting to recover, really. If you're expecting to recover it because you called some funky ass user code that you came from you don't know where, and it threw an array index out of bounds, you could imagine a server app saying, I'm going to catch array index out of bounds. I'm going to declare the transaction invalid. I'm going to know that everything it touched is broken and throw it all away and hope, let GC clean up the mess and then carry on. And I don't know if that's a reasonable you know, constraint to throw in a language design or not. But I want to do something better with exceptions uh, than catch and rethrow. Um, another option I was looking at, by the way, was one which says, uh, I cannot, I, I can catch it exactly, I can catch and not rethrow it exactly once. I can catch and, and actually have an action. So it's on error, do this action, but it's going to get thrown again. And it's going to keep getting thrown, and every layer in between uh, has an opportunity to catch and take an action, but it's going to keep getting thrown till there is a single final catch, which cannot rethrow, that declares the job done. You know, the cleanup of the error is over with, and the error is recovered from completely. Uh, and this is a case where I don't have to do anything, any thinking about all the in-between layers. Um, if I don't want to catch it, I don't, and I just, you know, the exception just blows through. If I want to catch, I can. I don't rethrow or get to change its type, but I can do local cleanup of my local situation. And then eventually some higher level point says, we believe this uh, exception is now completely handled and we're going to not rethrow. Um, and in this, this model, you can't throw an exception because otherwise people will just catch and rethrow anyhow. Um, actually, in Elm, I don't know that you can throw an exception. You don't throw an exception. Instead, you just return an error code. And you can always return an error code. You just decide, I'm in error. I'm returning an error code. Um, so we'll have to talk about that one. That, that's an open question. So I don't know what else is going on here. Um, I, I mentioned uh, overloading in my language. I already have it. I have overloading uh, resolution baked in, although I don't have very many types to, to test it on right now. But it's clearly doing things correctly with float, int, and string types in terms of uh, you know uh, determining uh, types for functions and, and overloaded function defs. So I guess I'll, I'll close with saying I'm going to teach a class in the fall. Go find me on Twitter. That's Cliff, uh, Cliff under click, or go to cliffc.org slash blog to get a full report and to find more RSS feeds for me. And uh, uh, thank you very much for listening, and I hope to see you in a class sometime this fall. Bye-bye. <laughs>